Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of June 13th. I'm Jim Henson, Director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. As always, I'm joined by my colleague Josh Blank. Today, we have the sad task of looking at the aftermath of the horrific shootings in Orlando in national and state politics. We both want to express that we have the utmost sympathy for the victims and their families and think that this was, of course, a horrible and sad thing. That said, we're going to spend some time looking at this sad event's aftermath and the politics that surround the public response. We'll start with the response of national leaders, which, especially during a a presidential campaign, were inevitable, don't you think, Josh? I mean, it's not just inevitable, it's, it's expected. I mean, these are the sort of events that presidents are expected to respond to. And during a campaign season, I think there's a lot of interest in seeing how the candidates of the major parties would potentially respond as president during these events, right? Yeah, and I think there's a reflexive response, and we were talking about this before the podcast, for people to say, oh, you know, you're going to get political right away, aren't you? Well, there's no way this is not going to be political. And I think it what we really have to think about are the underlying judgments that are going in here, what people's motivations are, and what the context of these responses are to somehow expect that, particularly in this case, as we'll unpack you know, further on, that there were going to be no politics in this is completely unrealistic. Well, there's the old saw, politics is everywhere. And that they say that about much less political events or potentially political events than this, right? Right. So there's, you know, without, without um, losing the very real human and, and sad dimension of this, there was no way this was not going to be uh, political. So uh, we want to look at some of the responses and play some clips. But first, let's make sure that we have just the basics of the situation in place. Right. It would be hard uh, not to have heard much about this uh, over the last few days. But briefly, here are some basic facts. And these facts are still unfolding. So, you know, some of this could change. But uh, Omar Mateen, a 29-year-old American born uh, in New York, in fact. Not far from Donald Trump. Not far from Donald Trump. Uh, He had Afghan parents. He entered the the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida, a little before 2 a.m. and opened fire, killing 49 uh, people and wounding another 53. During a a 911 call later in the evening, he pledged allegiance to ISIS. Um, You know, previously he had been under investigation by the FBI on on two occasions, both of which uh, ended up not proceeding. And he appears to have bought uh, the guns that he used legally. Right. So those are some of the basic facts. And I, I think that as we look at that and we'll unpack this, you can see all of the different things that are that are converging here. And it was it was a gay it was a Latin night at what is a well-known and high profile gay lesbian nightclub in Orlando. And so we have this convergence of terrorism and national security, civil rights, particularly gay, lesbian, LGBT rights, um, guns, right, always volatile. 
think you got them all. I think that it seems like there's one more thing that I'm leaving out. But Immigrations to some degree. And immigration. That's the other thing I was thinking of. Um, and, of course, because he's the president, because he's response, feelings about and, and attitude toward Barack Obama, the president. So let's start and, and play a clip from the president's initial response, uh, really the morning after, as this was coming to light, Sunday morning. This is an especially heartbreaking day for all of our friends, our fellow Americans who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. The shooter targeted a nightclub where people came together to be with friends, to dance and to sing, and to live. The place where they were attacked is more than a nightclub. It is a place of solidarity and empowerment where people have come together to raise awareness, to speak their minds, and to advocate for their civil rights. So this is a sobering reminder that attacks on any American, regardless of race, ethnicity, religion, or sexual orientation, is an attack on all of us and on the fundamental values of equality and dignity that define us as a country. So very presidential, very somber. Right. Very, you know, for the most part, I thought very, actually not even for the most part, entirely appropriate. The rest of the speech, the first part of the speech laid out some of the facts as they knew them. And this was really literally just a few hours after this had happened. It was midday, midday Sunday. Um, and in in laying out the, the facts of it, which were tentative at that point, the president urged people to wait, get more of the facts, um, and w- but but did mention that there probably you know that there might have been a terror connection at this point. Um, Donald Trump's response, which uh, was widely circulated the next day, he was did several media appearances, but we have a a clip from Donald Trump calling into Fox and Friends early Monday morning. So let's let's play that. We're led by a man that is a very, very look. Right. We're led by a man that either is is. He's not tough, not smart, or he's got something else in mind. And there's something else in mind. You know, people can't believe it. People cannot be, they cannot believe that President Obama is acting the way he acts and can't even mention the words radical Islamic terrorism. There's something going on. It's inconceivable. There's something going on. So two interesting things that became have become very prominent and gotten a lot of play in the last 48 hours. First, the kind of dark insinuation without, you know, quite saying anything explicitly that there was something often inexplicable about the president's response. And then the substance of that being this reference to uh, his unwillingness to use the phrase Islamic terrorism or radical Isla- Islamic, Islamic ter- radical Islamic, Islamic terrorism. Terrorism, basically, you know, and the president has been reluctant to use the term radical Islamic terrorism or radical Islam or radical Islamism um, for reasons that had to do with the their strategy from the Obama administration's perspective of not further antagonizing uh, the Islamic world, right, or or, or elevate or sort of you know. Elevating the idea that that America is hostile as a right. country towards Islam, in the sense that that is not helpful strategically, has been their position. Right, and, and Donald Trump has has adopted this from others. Frankly, I mean, this has been a line of of criticism of the Obama administration prior to Donald Trump even declaring his candidacy. 
uh, that's been prominent in recent years as a way of as, as a as a kind of stick to beat the the Obama administration in terms of their their foreign policy. Yeah, and that's a pretty it's a pretty common criticism among Republicans. Marco Rubio was doing it a lot during during Ted the Cruz. presidential primary. Ted Cruz. In fact, I think you know. Trump was a little little late to the game on the bashing Obama over this. I mean, the the piece that got of that comment that or that set of comments that got a lot more coverage was sort of his implicit linking of Obama towards some kind of complicity. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and this this obviously reinvoked the fact that Donald Trump was almost certainly the most prominent birther. Right. What's a birther? Uh, that is the people that you know claim that that there was no real evidence that President Obama had been born in the United States, that he was born somewhere else. And Trump had been very prominent in this uh, in the earlier part of the decade and has still not entirely renounced that position. Right. Even after even after the president released his birth certificates. And there and there is a degree of, you know, from a very kind of pure, you know, non-judgmental kind of attitude or a very uh, analytical point of view. Donald Trump's use of rhetoric and these to to step right up to the edge of saying something, but be able to say, "Well, I'm not saying it. I'm just suggesting it." Or, you know, he often uses the diction, "I've heard this," or right. people say, "People tell me all the you know, time." And in this one, you know, it's like people can't believe it, right? Even though it's not entirely clear what he's saying, they shouldn't believe. But the implication is that somehow, you know, back in the Cold War, you know, we used to talk about people being soft on communism, and this is. The implication here is to link these questions about Obama's identity to him being, quote unquote, soft on terrorism. And he doesn't have to make the link directly because the media will do it for him. Right. And which they did very they quickly. Did. Yes. I mean, within moments of him saying that it was in pretty much all the media outlets. I mean, it was on Fox. It leapt across the spectrum of political coverage. I think I heard it on the way to work that morning on NPR. I, so, saw, I saw it in multiple <laughs> morning newsletters I read. I mean, right. it was so everywhere. It, it, they they covered the waterfront. Now Trump was also trying to extend that criticism to Hillary Clinton, and has in fact said that and and basically lumped them together. And that makes sense from a political point of view. And, and, she was Obama's Secretary of State, and you should expect to hear that happening throughout the rest of the campaign. It's just that the Democrats, when Obama, you know, when Obama was running in two thousand eight, linking John McCain to George Bush, which was even even more sort of a Particularly given the fact the that there was not a lot of love between those no, two. No, but this is a common campaign tactic. Right. And it, and it makes a certain amount of sense. And certainly right now, for her part, Hillary Clinton is hugging up on the president pretty good, which one would expect. Nonetheless, and so to that extent, Hillary Clinton's response, which came very quickly in her own set of multiple media, uh, media appearances, um, Approached Trump's criticism on that in an interesting way, and in that she just, you know, she basically pivoted away from it. So let's let's listen to a clip from from Hillary Clinton. First of all, uh, from my perspective, it matters what we do more than what we say, and you know, it mattered we got Bin Laden, not what name we called him. And I have clearly said that we face terrorist enemies who use Islam to justify slaughtering innocent people. And, you know, whether you call it radical jihadism, radical Islamism, I think they mean the same thing. I'm happy to say either. But what I won't do, because I think it is dangerous for our efforts to defeat this threat, is to demonize and demagogue and, you know, declare war on an entire religion. 
So we hear Hillary Clinton adopting, on one hand, adopting the administration's logic on the language. Which is not surprising. She was secretary of state. The administration she, probably. She was there. Probably had a part. <laughs> and and as, as we heard the president do uh, a couple days later, the next day, uh, reminded people of the fact implicitly, I was in the room when we all killed bin Laden. Um, but also, so, you know, two things. So maintaining the logic of the position, but also an interesting pivot away and attempt to dismiss this whole matter of language by just saying, sure, I'll say it. It doesn't really matter. Now, the next day, President Obama met with his national security team, uh, and then gave a pretty notable, about a 30 minute speech after that meeting. The first part of the speech, um, was policy nuts and bolts update on the logic of the, of the administration's approach to terror, what's going on with the fight against ISIL, just, you know, pretty nuts, nuts and bolts policy, policy report to the American people, if you will. Um, the second half was a very notable and uh, to quote a headline that was actually on the Washington Post web- website, pretty clearly pissed off President Obama speaking to the intimations from from Donald Trump and from the Republicans. We've got a longish excerpt from the president, but let's let's listen to that. And let me make a final point. For a while now, the main contribution of some of my friends on the other side of the aisle have made in the fight against ISIL is to criticize this administration and me for not using the phrase radical Islam. That's the key, they tell us. We can't beat ISIL unless we call them radical Islamists. What exactly would using this label accomplish? What exactly would it change? Would it make ISIL less committed to trying to kill Americans? Would it bring in more allies? Is there a military strategy that is served by this? The answer is none of the above. Calling a threat by a different name does not make it go away. This is a political distraction. That is actually even one of the milder parts of that yeah. of that speech. Yeah, uh, definitely. He really, you know, he called Trump out all but by name. He made a reference in, in another part of the speech to the presumptive Republican candidate. He referred to him yapping. Yeah, he referred to all the yapping out there. Um, you know, but also very much gave a a, a speech that was about saying this is very serious business. And implicitly, as as we were talking about earlier, made the distinction between running for president and being the president. It's a little different. Yeah. And and I think, you know, and that distinction here, I think, also serves in looking at Obama and Clinton's response in a subtle way and the differences there. Hillary Clinton is is very much, and again, not to not to say she's not being serious, but it's a very tactical move, I think, to simply say, it doesn't matter. Yeah, sure, I'll say it fine right right where he's saying look i'm the president this gets no results i'm here trying to run this deal and make things happen and this is not helping i mean there's a there's a there's a later part in that speech where he's 
he's kind of sarcastic and he says, you know, not once, to paraphrase, not once has one of my advisors said, hey, you know, if you should start using this term, it'll just turn this whole thing around. And it kind of boils down the point of what he was after, I think. Yeah. And, there, and there's a recognition of the fact, you know, that as president, not as someone running for president, he is the figurehead of our country. And what he says, you know, carries import in the rest of the world in a way that, you know, Trump may be interesting and to some people, you know, scary. Right. And Clinton may, you know, be, you know, let's say expected probably to win the next you know, election, which maybe sort of somewhat speaks to her a little bit more careful logic about some of this stuff. Um, but neither of them are president. Right. Neither of them are commander in chief of the armed forces. Neither one of them at this point represents America and the rest of the world. And I think that's where, and that's, that's right. I mean, that's a nice parsing there. And I was thinking that when we we're listening to the clip where you see that distinction where Clinton is very willing to say to a large degree, because she's on the campaign trail. Yeah. If it makes a difference to you, I'll say radical Islamic terrorism. Yeah. She all but just went fine. Right. <laughs> right. But I'll tell you, you know, if she were to win, if she were to win in November, I don't think you'd see her saying it a bunch. Right. Right. It's uh, unlikely. Almost, almost certainly not. Almost certainly not. So now that we've kind of laid some of this out and looked at these political responses, let's let's take that apart a little bit. I mean, and really what we see here is different different elements you know really remember the two parties when you come right down to it looking at these different issues that we've laid out that this intersects and looking for what we would think of as a frame that suits their purposes and that's and in the most and again this is where we probably it probably feels a little uncomfortably mercenary to be talking about it that this way but this this is how it's working right Right. I mean, the the reality is, is I, I think any, you know, it's sort of in these sorts of situations, oftentimes the person who says like, we need to set politics aside is the worst because then they go and they start being completely political. So in some ways, you know, this is what we expect. I mean, it's easy to sort of dismiss the language as, as crass or craven or opportunistic or whatever. But the reality is, is that, uh, you know, in a time like this, people are looking for solutions. They're looking for understanding. They're looking for meaning. They're trying to, um, they're trying to sort of go beyond the basic headline and figure out where this fits into what's going on in America. I'd say even myself, you know, when I woke up and started reading the news, uh, you know, my first thought was, oh, this this was at a this was at a, a gay and lesbian club. I'm like, was this was this you know an attack? A hate on, crime. Was this a hate crime? And then I instantly saw, oh, this is being investigated as terrorism, and I thought. And it's, for me, I thought, well, which one? Which one is it? Right. Right. And I was trying to figure out: is this is this a hate crime? Is this a terrorist attack? What is this? And I think that's what politicians are trying to help people do. But as politicians are want to do, they do it in a way that is uh, going to be helpful to them. Now, it doesn't mean it's just again, it doesn't mean it's totally crass. It's just that there's a different understanding of the world. As someone you know who sort of studies public opinion, it you know there's something about this event that's extremely interesting. Right. In that these elements that we've talked about uh, at the top of this podcast, you know, we have a terrorist, you know, with the sort of question of loosely co this connection of question of immigration, which is a loose tie to sort of the fact that, you know, even though he was an American citizen, his parents were from another country. Uh, you know, there's sort of issues of discrimination and tolerance, both in terms of gays and lesbians, but also in terms of Muslims, because, you know, he, right. he's a Muslim. And Latinos. And Latinos, right, which is the one that kind of gets forgotten about a lot. I've sort of seen, you know, there have actually been some some prominent uh, Latino commentators who have been pointing out, like, hey, let's not forget that these are also mostly 
uh, Latinos, right? And so you notice in the response at the top, uh, you hear the Republicans talking about, or at least Trump, but also other Republicans are talking about terrorism, Barack Obama, and immigration. And the point of a frame is to sort of tell people what to think about influencing how people uh, and individuals perceive meaning in this situation. And so, you know, we don't think of things in isolation. It's not like, you know, we can just say, oh, this was this one thing. We define it like like this is it's just a terrorist attack. Well, well, what else should we think about? How else how, should how we would, understand that? Yeah. How would you I mean, what do you think is a good operational like working definition of of frame? Something like elements selected to provide a for a a particular context of political events? Yeah, I think that's pretty good. I mean, it's, yeah, it's definitely about... I don't even have that written down. No, that was great. You should write a textbook or something. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so Republicans are sort of trying to, you know, in this event, they want you to be thinking about, you know, the president and his response to terrorism and whether it's been adequate. They want you to think about terrorism. They want you to think about unchecked immigration because those are issues that they're basically running on. Right. For the Democrats, you notice that Obama's initial, you know, Obama's response, he was quick to highlight the fact that, you know, the, the club glowers were, were, were gays and lesbians. And he specifically mentioned civil rights. Right. Uh, you know, in, the, in some of the responses that follow, you know, Democrats are likely, you know, are likely to continue talking about gun control. And the president talked, did t- we didn't play those. Right. Excerpts, but the president talked about gun control and right. guns in both of his prominent statements. On right. This. So we'll hear, you know, so we heard a lot about gun control discrimination and, and I mean to a lesser degree but still still so terrorism right and so the idea here is how, how are we supposed to understand you know these events right and that's sort of what this fallout has been and to some degree there's some sort of uh, there's some perceived advantage you know I think there's two ways to look at this I guess is on the one hand you say there's some perceived advantage to getting a large degree of the public to think about these issues on your terms um, you know on the other hand in a less sort of just totally I don't know self-interested sense, this just reflects the way that, you know, the parties and, and the ideologues and the people who sort of uh, who who identify with them tend to think about these issues. It's not that, you know, they're going out and sort of creating this opinion. It's that this opinion exists and you're sort of and the politicians in a lot of response and their responses are trying to activate those attitudes and remind people, you know, if you're a Republican, how you feel about how Obama's handled terrorism or if you're a Democrat, you know, how you feel about gay rights right and gun control and that sort of explains the different kind of language that's coming out of both sides i think that's right i think there there are in, you know again it feels a little awkward but there there are interesting gray areas in which the definitions and and how those frames get set are very fluid here um especially in a case like this where there are so many of them present already exactly exactly so i mean is this you know, if, if you're thinking about this as an immigration issue or you're thinking about this as an act of terrorism, but, you know, from the Republican, I mean, I think there are ambiguities on both sides, you know, I think. But, you know, from the Republican side, for example, if, you know, you think that this is an act of terrorism and the Democrats have been too weak on this and this is a tragedy, but you have very conservative attitudes about gay and lesbian rights you know, there's, there's some tension there and not that, you know, not that because you don't believe in gay and lesbian rights, you would be happy about this. It's not to imply that, but it is a kind of counter, 
you know, there's counter pressure there. It can it can be, but it can also, you know. but they can also reinforce each other, right? right? I mean, I think that if you're someone who feels, you know, let's say that, that the country has moved too fast on on let's say, you know, civil some civil rights issues recently, and you're also generally, you know, think that we should have closed borders. And that, you know, terrorism is, is this huge, you know, is, is the one of the biggest problems facing the country. In some ways, this can work, you know, this can be very easy for you and that you say, hey, this was a terrorist attack because of our open borders. Of course, the Democrats are going to talk about civil rights. They just missed the point. And so, and so you're able to, def- yeah, you're actually able to deflect the parts that are, that are dissonant. Right, exactly. Right, with your values. So, yeah, that's, an, I think that's an interesting way of thinking about it. Um, okay, so to be, to be just... Let's a get, little gross about this. Let's get let's get as gross as possible. Which which party has an edge in their response to this? Do you think? I, I mean, to, for me, I think it's just, it's for a couple of reasons. I think the GOP, the Republicans, have have sort of a native response to this, and this is. And this is something that, you know, there's sort of this idea. A native advantage. A native advantage, right. Yeah. There's something, you know, this idea in political science called, you know, issue ownership. And and the idea is, is that, you know, as each side, you know, runs in an election and tries to tries to win, they try to tell the voters what the election is about. And so the idea, basically, and this doesn't always work and it's, you know, got its problems, the theory is a theory. But the idea is, you know, if, if the election is about, let's say, education, the Democrats are an advantage because in the end, no Republican is going to say, let's spend more on education than a Democrat, Right. If the issue is about, you know, let's say crime and punishment, right? Or, you know, let's say we've got a problem, you know, we've got a problem with crime. Republicans are probably going to win because in the end, Republicans are going to be able to, you know, let's say pursue much stricter sentencing guidelines and put more cops on the streets and, and all these kinds of things. And Democrats are going to have just trouble with this. Right. And historically, parties have been have succeeded by with when candidates or leaders or usually it's an individual or a strategist find ways to overcome that. So you, as you're using that example of crime, you think about Bill Clinton and the crime bill. Right. Which... And, and this is where Democrats said, well, let's just put, let's put, you know, a lot more cops on the street because we like, because we'll spend money on it. Right. And so it's a way for them to actually flip the issue. But for the most part, this is what happens. And this isn't, this isn't going to be the campaign issue. Right. But you can think about this as like a little microcosm here, which is to say, um, you know, as you come out of this and people are trying to understand what it's about and there's this competition over it, one of the things that I think about with all these elements involved is, one, how, you know, how proximate are these attitudes to what actually happened, right? So I think for Democrats, they're at a little bit of a disadvantage, let's say, on the civil rights, because though it was the gay and lesbian club and though, you know, most of the people in there were, were minorities in a couple senses, both in terms of his gays and lesbians, but also in terms of his being Latinos and Latinas, um, you know, for a lot of people, it's kind of like, well, is that this what, but this isn't being called a hate crime, really. I mean, right. there's sort of, I mean, now again. And there's a little bit of dissonant information out there. Right. That, that, but, but it's, it's awkward to leverage that for political purposes. I mean, the, you know, the, the killer's father kind of prominently said on the record, um, that he really deplored what his son had done. It was completely wrong, but then kind of followed up with, because it's up to God to punish gays and lesbians, right? And there were, yeah, and there was some, and there was some uh, indication that he had said that uh, his son had gotten upset seeing two men kiss on the street prior right. to this, and and so it's definitely part of this. I mean, there's no doubt about it. But but again, how when I say like proximate, how how close is it to sort of you know your understanding of what happens? I mean, for some people, it'll be a little bit easier. Yeah, that for, doesn't, and that that yeah, that that factoid doesn't go in a direction the Democrats can really. No, and, and then do the other the anyone. other Democratic response is to talk about gun control. Well. You know, <laughs> we've had, you know, a, a number of, of incidents of mass shootings, you know, over the last, you know, eight years plus before that. And, and you know, I think there was a 
an article that came out on Vox that basically said, oh, and here were the other 48 shootings that right. happened in the country yes, you know, on the same day. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I probably agree with that mostly I th- in terms of this being a better natural frame for the for the Republicans. I mean, the one the one thing that qualifies that a little bit is that with Donald Trump at the top of the ticket, you have a lot of unpredictability and, and already you can get Donald Trump providing a lot of noise in the lines, you know, and things that that are, you know, to use the, the notion of framing again, that don't necessarily work with the frame seamlessly so you know he goes out and picks a fight with the president by sort of implicating the president somehow in some kind of conspiracy or you know he uses something that that drives the media narrative in a way that doesn't quite work with the with the traditional use of or or the the reflexive use of the frame well but i think you're talking about two different things here because on the one hand there's sort of is there a is there a natural advantage to one part or the other, and then there's, can the party take advantage of it? Yeah. And so for, you know, for Republicans, the natural advantage is, is that for them, you know, the attitudes are very proximate. It's right. about, it's about terrorism. It's about immigration. It's about, you know, the presidents and the Democrats sort of inability to deal with this issue. And the thing is, those attitudes are reinforcing for the most part, you know, a, you know, a, restri- sure. a restrictive immigration a- an attitude towards immigration a, you know, sort of strong, you know, sort of concern about terrorism and a very negative view of the president are likely to go hand in hand in hand amongst the type of voters that Trump's and the Republicans are trying to mobilize uh, in the next election cycle or right. So that's one thing. I mean, that's a natural advantage. But the other side of it is, does Trump make it hard for them to actually realize that because of the way that he addresses it? So that as a, as a congressional Republican, you know, or you know, right, someone running for reelection, instead of responding to the tragedy, you're responding to Trump's co- response to the tragedy. Yeah. Well, and that's, that, where they, that's what and, I mean by noise. Yeah, yeah, the no, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's where they lose the advantage. So 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 let's let's turn to Texas. So what, what was the response here in Texas? Well, Texas, as always, was an interesting filtering of of national politics. Now, on one hand, there was the you know an expect a response to be expected in, in in a broad public sense. There were marches and vigils in sympathy with and support for the Orlando victims and their family, and and for the cause of of LGBT security rights. Um, and that that happened, near as I can tell, in most of the major uh, Texas city. There was a uh, uh, a pretty big march here uh, Sunday night in in Austin. Um, in the political world, a kind of weird thing happened, but weird in a very kind of expected sense. So at 7 a.m. Uh, Sunday, so a couple hours after after the new after after really the situation at least resolved was resolved and the police had gone in. They went in a little after five, I think. So. Seven o'clock, so maybe a couple hours later, given the time, or even just an hour later, given the time difference, uh, the lieutenant governor Dan Patrick uh, on his social media pages uh, posted a biblical quote. Now, this is something he does generally every Sunday morning, and the quote was from Galatians, and it read, "Do not be deceived; God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows." Now, this was immediately read as a response to the events in Orlando and just as immediately widely condemned by, especially by Democrats and and by liberals and social media. And it got picked up very quickly by the national media um, that morning. Right. The the implication being that, you know, 
the lieutenant governor was was blaming the victims and using a, a biblical quote to justify yeah, to, it. to say yeah essentially they uh they got what they deserved now dan patrick was out of the country as he as he pointed out and communicated relatively quickly i'm on an island with poor internet connectivity and the uh, the Pat- team patrick's response was that we schedule these social media posts uh you know weeks in advance and you know they the quote was with a, a kind of a nice little gif you know we have to produce those graphics ahead of time we schedule them you know and if you've done social media campaigns this is not implausible on the face of it it's very it's very rare i mean you know it's very rare that if you run a social media account which you know we have and we do and and i know a lot of people who do that you're actually getting up on sunday morning at, at 6 30 to, to put together a graphic and then post it at seven yeah that's that's so it's you know at least for those of us who do this it's a very plausible right so we're you know so we're we're um we're sliding into the into into the position of giving the, the lieutenant governor the benefit of the doubt, which many people did not, and he was roundly criticized. Um, and I, I think if you un, unpack this rapid response to Patrick's post by the Democrats and the national press, um, you know you can you can look at two things, and we, and we're still going round about this. Yeah. My gut feeling, and this is a, a gut feeling, and I can intellectually see other alternatives is that it probably was not, cert- almost certainly not Dan Patrick himself deciding to post this message in response. And there are, at the very least, political reasons why he might not do this, though reasonable people could disagree on this and say, but this really goes to the second point that's really the more interesting point about this, which is that the response to Dan Patrick didn't happen in a vacuum. There was a context for this, you know, well before the Orlando shooting, some of which we've talked about in in here, which is that Dan Patrick has attempted to be not only a leader in the state, but a leader on the national stage in resisting uh, the the, the Department of Education or the Department of Justice advisories on LGBT access to bathrooms in uh, in public education facilities and schools, but also even kind of jumped in the fight when Target, the the Target stores announced that they would allow transsexuals to use the appropriate bathroom of their chosen gender. Uh, He got out in front of criticizing Target. So, and we could come up with other examples policy-wise. Well, let's say even before that, right? I mean, he was the leading voice against Houston's hero ordinance. He was against, Uh, he was dead set against gay marriage and in fact wanted, you know, was supporting efforts in the Texas Senate to uh, pass legislation or at least a resolution opposing gay marriage. I believe he was the one who uh, who requested from the attorney general a decision or, you know, about whether or not uh, clerks in Texas could, you know, refuse to marry gay couples after the Supreme Court decision. Right. So, the, so, the, the, so in sum, there are lots of reasons to both doubt his intentions. Right. But I think more interesting in terms of thinking about the contrast between the state and the national response to put Patrick in a frame, mm-hmm. right? And, the, and the, this is his framing again, right? So, so the question is, with you know, in terms of interpreting uh, Dan Patrick's tweet and his response, you know, is this just someone who made a mistake? Is this just another example of like the perils of social media, or you know, is this you know the bigoted lieutenant governor going and uh, blaming the victims 
in a in a mass tragedy so that he can you know increase his bona fides with social conservatives. Right, and and, and there's you know, and so that's been you know part of the discussion. Then you know, given the way that political organizations work in the modern world, it's possible that there's something in the middle there. There might have been an aggressive staffer, and lieutenant governor is known to have some ideological people working for him. Sure, you'd expect that. You would expect it. And so there, there is kind of a middle thing that somebody may, may have made an error in judgment. But in the end, it's probably not likely to hurt the lieutenant governor with his base in any way. And in fact, might even be a, a soft positive, shall we say. Yeah, I mean, we we sort of... You say this all the time, and it's and it's you know, and I I've sort of seen it again and again enough that I, I've incorporated it into my understanding of things, which is you know, if you're a Texas Republican politician, a negative editorial in the New York Times is like something you send out, you know, as a campaign mailer, right? You know, if if Huffington Post is criticizing you, you know, it's not really going to hurt you with your base voters here in right. Texas. So there's kind of a dual dynamic here, and and our friend Jonathan Tylove had a, a really great column. Totally worth reading, and, and his is the first reading. Yeah, this is the second exactly. reading. Exactly. So it's called First tip. Reading, and it, and it ran Monday that really broke down both the patch, you know, the the initial Patrick media postings, Patrick's long explanation, which you know probably even more irritated Democrats without going into it, and also just the way that the Democrats and the national media went after him. And much of the national media coverage covered the tweet and then didn't, to be fair, didn't get around to Actually providing the explanation and, and and what Patrick's cleanup was. So, you know, just just to just to pause on a point for a second, you know, one of the main uh, one of the main points that Jonathan Tyler made in that piece was, you know, if you just step back a second and think about the logic here, you know, you have to believe that Dan Patrick, you know, woke up, saw this tragedy taking place and thought, I know. I'm going to go on my social media account and blame the victims with a biblical quote. And, you know, it's one of these things where this happens, I think, on both sides. And there's a lot of talk about this right now, about sort of affective polarization and sort of the negative views that people have towards the other party. Um, Explain what, just briefly what you mean by affective polarization. The idea here is that, you know, it's not that people are becoming necessarily more ideological or, you know, or sort of moving in their policy positions, but that what they're actually, what you're starting to witness is sort of these just negative attitudes towards people of the other parties. And the, and the, and the polling item that people most often cite is, you know, would you have a problem with your son or daughter marrying, you know, uh, an, an individual who identifies as the other party, as a Republican right. if you're a Democrat. And the, the number of people, the percentage of people in America who increasingly feel they have a problem with that just keeps going up and up and up. I think it's like, I think it's north of a majority wouldn't want their child. Right. I mean, the truth is, is, you know, if you sort of, you know, I don't know, trade in politics and move around with people, most people are not awful. You know, most people are not, you know, terrible. And just as, you know, Dan Patrick, you know, whether you agree with his politics or not, you know, you may not agree with how he gets to his solutions or what he thinks we should be doing, but, you know, he's doing what he thinks is best. Right. The same thing with the president. I mean, that's the thing. It's not as though the president is sitting there, you know, and not doing things to make terrorist attacks on the people that he represents easier. I mean, right. and if you just sort of think about it for a second and pause, you know, in the moment, that sounds pretty crazy. 
And just as it sounds, and whether you're to be fair, <laughs> to be fair, and whether you're you know a Democrat or a Republican, you know to think that the president is sort of involved in these Colleen attacks somehow, was right? Islamic terrorists, right? Or that the lieutenant governor is sitting here, you know, having a party because forty nine people were killed and they happen to be you know gay. It's it's you know it's just totally it's crazy. Yeah, I think that's right. So. We had, we had one more thing we were going to talk about quickly, and we're going to run out of time, but we should end by saying, so does all of this, whether it's Dan Patrick's, the the mix-up, the, the, the imbroglio over, to, over Dan Patrick or the fallout from this, does this have policy consequences in Texas? The thing that people are, are talking most about is the possibility of maybe some gun legislation or you're the national or the state. Now we're talking about the state level. And I think the general sense is that certainly at the state level, this is unlikely to result in any any action in the legislature, the, at least any that gets anywhere. Yeah, I mean, in short, absolutely not. <laughs> you know, it, you know what we tend to see is after these sorts of tragedies, you know, we might see a, a slight uptick uh, in terms of sort of support maybe for universal background checks, which is already extremely high, even here in Texas. Uh, you know, maybe support for some more mental health screenings. Right. Uh, and mental health resources. Both of which are kind of consensus points in public opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, you know, as these events sort of happen with greater frequency and with greater coverage, you know, the you know the, the effect it has on public opinion with each, you know, subsequent event seems to sort of lessen just a little bit each time as people just sort of see this as kind of the status quo. Now, in Texas, we have, you know, very... Uh, sort of we're using terms conservative liberal here but sort of conservative views about guns in this case meaning you know generally we classically liberal classically liberal but ideologically conservative in the here and now about guns and i mean the last legislative session we actually you know passed open carry legislation you know uh concealed carry on college campuses and so it's not as though you should expect in the in the next legislative session to see them go back and reverse any of those or add significant checks um really you know i would say barring a major tragedy here in Texas, but even even, even then, then probably not. Yeah, I think I think that's right. It's just the fundamentals for it aren't there in either broad Republican public opinion, which is what the majority party here is looking at. Um but even but even among Democrats, I mean that's the thing that makes Texas a little bit unique is right. that Texas Democrats are more conservative than their national counterparts. It's worth reminding people that, you know, Wendy Davis came out, you know, uh, in the gubernatorial campaign for some form of open carry, right? right? Although she later... She later rescinded that, but that's a but that's a reflection of the reality of, of, of what, the electorate. Yeah, the sense of what the pressure, you know, what, you, what the pressures that they feel that are coming from public opinion. Yeah, I, I think that, I think that's right. And I, as I've thought about this, I mean, the only real consequence we see here is not a policy consequence, it's a political consequence. It's, we're seeing... You know, we saw a little bit of, we've seen some of the Republicans in, in Texas that are making a point of distancing themselves from Trump ding him a little bit. But it was hard not to look at the people that were doing that and have it feel just as opportunistic as everyone else. It's over-determined. Uh, I mean, there's a, lot of pe- there's a lot of Republicans sort of distancing themselves from Trump, you know, seemingly every day for various reasons yeah and it's a bet you know and that that's that's just really handicapping you yeah. come right down to it i think so on that note thanks for joining us uh as always uh be well and we will talk to you next week the second reading podcast is a production of the texas politics project 
and the Project 2021 Development Studio at the University of Texas at Austin. 